I demand a lot of sound from a poem. The arts are filled with people who are non-traditional thinkers. The arts are a wonderful window onto the soul of America. I started ending my columns by saying excelsior. Reading awakens your senses. If you write well, you are utterly exposed. A voice said, this is George Cukor. Its value will never be diminished. The oldest art we have is narrative literature. The arts, it's what makes us human. There's a reason that fiction exists. Say it's gonna rain, children. God's gonna save Theater can really change people's lives. It can be profoundly about human experience. It's gonna rain. They crown me queen. I the queen of the Zydeco music. The National Endowment for the Arts presents Artworks. I had Spider-Man Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive spider. That's easy. You can say that in one sentence. He became Spider-Man. He was bitten by a radioactive spider. <laughs> that was Stan Lee, former chairman of Marvel Comics. He's the guy who created Iron Man, the Fantastic Four, the X-Men, and, of course, Spider-Man. Tireless and prolific, Stan Lee is justifiably famous for his fabulous creations, but he's also appreciated for his successful effort to raise the profile of comics from fringe entertainment to a well-respected multi-million dollar enterprise. In 2008, Stan Lee was given the National Medal of Arts, the highest honor bestowed on an artist by the federal government. I spoke with Stan about his career and how he became the master of Marvel Comics. Stan Lee, unlike a lot of other comic book writers, you set your work in your hometown of New York City. How come? They live in New York because when I wrote them, I try to be incredibly accurate in everything I do. And I felt if I had the stories take place in New York, I would know what I was writing about. I, for instance, I had Peter Parker live in Forest Hills. Now, if I was from Chillicothe, Ohio, I would not have thought to have Peter Parker live in Forest Hills. So you see, it all holds together beautifully. Well, I think it also holds together in a different way of what you gave superheroes, which is very human qualities. Usually they live in Metropolis or Gotham, but there's a real specificity to your characters down to where they live. In fact, I, I tried to be incredibly specific, as you say, and if um, one of our characters would go to the movies, I'd have him go to the Radio City Music Hall or Lowe's State. Let's see, in the Fantastic Four, the Human Torch, Johnny Storm, who was a teenager at the time, when he drove a car, I'd have him drive a Chevy Corvette rather than a whiz-bang V8 or something, you know. So I love to try to inject little things like that in to make it seem as if these ridiculous stories were somehow plausible or possible. What made you want to fiddle with the whole model of the superhero the way you did? In all honesty, I didn't realize I was fiddling with anything. I just, I wanted to write the kind of stories that I thought I would like to read. And I like things that, while they may not be accurate, they have the seeming of accuracy. For instance, when I was a kid, I loved to read Sherlock Holmes. And I had his address. He lived on Baker Street, you know, and it seemed real to me. I later, when I went to England, of course, went to look at his house in Baker Street, and I understand half of the tourists in England go to see his house on Baker Street. So little touches like that, I just feel, are they're nice because they, 
they give you the feeling of wanting to believe in the stories you're reading. For instance, with the Fantastic Four, they had to have a headquarters building. So I said it was on the east side of Lower New, of New York, around in the 30s. And a lot of people have told me when they came to New York, they'd look for the Baxter Building, as I called it. I'm sorry I wasn't wealthy enough to build a little building there, so they would have said, gee, he was right. <laughs> <laughs> How did the Fantastic Four come into being? Well, I had been writing a lot of stories for this publisher I worked for, and after, I think it was about 20 years, I really wanted to quit because the stories were fine and I was getting paid fairly, I thought, but he didn't believe that anybody but very young children and not very intelligent adults read comics. And he might have been right in those days. So he didn't want me to use too much dialogue. He didn't want me to concentrate on personality or characterization. And he just said, give me a lot of action, you know, a lot of running around and fighting. And and that's fine, and it's easy to do. But as I say, when I finally grew up, I felt, gee, I, I think I'd like to do something different that would mean something. And I was about to quit. And my wife, bless her, she said, you know, Stan, if you want to quit anyway why don't you write one book the way you would like to do it? The worst that can happen is he'll fire you, but you want to quit. So that's when I wrote The Fantastic Four, and I tried to violate some of the usual comic book rules. I felt um, I wouldn't give them secret identities because I've always felt if I had a superpower, which is not to say that I don't, there's no way I would want to hide the fact that, I, I mean, I'm a conceited guy. I'd run around, hey, look at me. I'm super. <laughs> I wouldn't wear a mask, and, and I certainly wouldn't walk around in a stupid costume. I'd wear a suit or jeans or something. I wouldn't want people to stare at me like I'm a nut. So none of the things in comics really seemed that real to me. So I didn't give them a secret identity, and instead of, the girl being somebody that the hero always has to save and the hero doesn't let her know that he's really Superman, he's only Clark Kent, I figured they're all going to know each other. So I let the girl be the fiancé of the hero and instead of the um, requisite teenage sidekick, I made the younger teenager, uh, he was obligatory, I had to have a teenager, but I made him the brother of the girl, so they were like a little family group. And um, and the fourth member of the Fantastic Four, I made him sort of a semi-ugly monster, which there weren't too many heroes who were like that in those days. And I, I thought, okay, I've gotten it out, oh, and I had a lot of dialogue, and I made the leader of the group, Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic, as he modestly called himself, I made him a very, like me a little bit, very loquacious. He used a lot of big words that most people didn't understand, and he was a crushing bore. They couldn't shut him up. And he really bored everybody except his fiance, who kind of liked him, but the other two members would say, Jesus, is he never going to stop talking? So I had fun with them, and I figured, okay, the axe will fall as soon as my publisher reads this book. But what happened was the book sold very well. So the next thing I knew, Martin, that was his name, Martin came in to me and he said, hey, Stan, how about trying another superhero book? I forget which it was. I think the next one might have been either the Hulk or the X-Men. But again, I tried to do something different with the Hulk. I thought it would be fun to get a, um, a monster and make him a hero. 
because I always used to love the movie Frankenstein, but I always thought the monster was really the good guy. He didn't want to hurt anybody, but those morons with the torches were always running up and down the hills chasing him. So I thought, I'll get a, a good monster, but just a good monster running around could get a little boring. So I remembered Jekyll and Hyde, and I thought, I'll give him a secret identity. And sometimes he's a monster called the Hulk, and sometimes he's a scientist named Bruce Banner who, like Dr. Jekyll, wishes he hadn't become Mr. Hyde. I'll make this guy be spending most of his life trying to stop being the Hulk but he can't figure out how to do it. And that could be interesting and give me a lot of complications. Then with the X-Men, of course, I figured um, everybody loved teenagers in stories in those days because they felt they're the ones reading the books. And everybody was looking for a good group series because the Justice League was doing well and the Fantastic Four was doing well. And they thought, let's get another group. So I thought, I'll get a group of teenagers but I'll give them each a superpower. But by now, I had run out of ways for characters to get superpowers because I'm not very good at that. I mean, I had I take the simplest, easiest way, the coward's way out. I had uh, Spider-Man Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive spider. That's easy. You can say that in one sentence. He became Spider-Man. He was bitten by a radioactive <laughs> spider. The Hulk, Bruce Banner, was subjected to gamma rays. There was a gamma ray explosion. He got caught in it. I have no idea what a gamma ray is, but it sounds pretty scientific, logical. Well, now I had already done radioactivity. I had already done a gamma ray. What am I going to do next? So I, again, as I am tempted to do, usually prone to do, I took the cowardly way out. I said, they're mutants. They were born that way. I don't have to explain anything. I don't have to worry about any more rays. So that's it. A bunch of mutants get together. So when I finally wrote the thing and I brought it to Martin, my publisher, I wanted to call the book The Mutants. He said, Stan, because he still didn't have much respect for the readers in those days. He said, nobody is going to know what a mutant is. You can't call them the mutants. So I went back and I thought for a while. And the leader of the group was called Professor Xavier with an X. And these were all a bunch of kids with extra powers. So it occurred to me, I'll call them the X-Men even though one was a girl, but I hope nobody would notice. So I decided, I said to him, okay, instead of the mutants, we're going to call them the X-Men. And I was amazed. He said, yeah, that's a good name. And I thought to myself as I left his office, if nobody is going to know what a mutant is, how is anybody going to know what an X-Man is if he sees that on the cover? But I had a name. I had won my battle. I didn't want to have any problems. And, you know, on and on. Then I did a lot of others, and we were lucky, and they sold, and... And now I'm talking into a microphone for the whole world to listen. And this is what happens when you write about monsters who have Jekyll and Hyde tendencies. <laughs> What's the origins of Spider-Man? He was bitten by a radioactive spider. No, I know. But what made you think Spider-Man? I always start by saying this. I, I've told this story so often that for all I know, it might even be true. When you want to do a superhero, the most important thing you have to do is figure out what is his or her superpower. And I had already written about the strongest guy in the world and a fellow who could burst into flame and fly and a girl who was invisible and on and on. And I was thinking, what else is there? But I had to come up with something or I might have lost my job. And I saw a fly or a bug or something on the wall. And I thought, hey, 
What about an, somebody with the power of an insect who can stick to walls and climb up and down a wall and be on a ceiling? So that sounded cool to me. No, in those days, I don't think they had the word cool. It probably sounded groovy to me <laughs> at that time. At any rate, okay, so now I needed a name. So I went down the list. Flyman didn't sound that good. Mosquito man, I don't know. Uh, bug man, insect man, and I got to Spider Man, and somehow Spider Man. That's it. And also, when I was a kid, there was a pulp magazine called The Spider Master of Men. Had absolutely nothing to do with spiders, but he called him. He was a guy who wore a mask, sort of like the Spirit, if you remember that, and a hat and a coat. And he went out and fought crooks, but they called him the Spider. And I read those things when I was about eight years old, and I thought it was so dramatic. So everything fell in place, and I thought I'll call him Spider-Man. And the rest, as, as we say in the NEA, is history. <laughs> <laughs> How did you first begin to write comics? Accidentally. I wanted to be a real writer, you know, novels, movies, things. So I remember when I was a little kid, I used to walk around, when I'd walk around the street, I carried a little briefcase with me. Nothing was in it, but I kind of thought it made me look like a writer. I was a big phony even in those days. And I just wanted to be a writer because, again, when I was very young, I had written a composition in school, and the teacher said, oh, boy, that's pretty good. So <laughs> that's what happens when a teacher says that's pretty good. My whole life changed. And, oh, I'm going to be a writer. And anyway, I had a cousin, girl cousin, who was married to a guy. That was this fellow Martin, the publisher. So my cousin's husband had a publishing company and published a lot of things, comic books, pulp magazines, slick magazines, movie magazines. And I heard that they were looking for an assistant up in that office in the comic book department. I mean, I had read comics, but that was the last thing I had ever thought of. But I applied. I figured... I'll get some experience if they hire me, stay a little while, and then I'll get out into the real world. And they did hire me. There were only two guys at the time there. There was two artists named Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Joe was sort of the artist editor, and Jack was more like the artist writer, although they both wrote. And they were brilliant. And I was the guy who assisted them. I'd fill the inkwell. In those days, they had inkwells that they dipped their pens into. And I'd run down and get them lunch, got them sandwiches, and I would erase the pages when they needed it, and I proofread, things like that. Did they call you kid? Oh, I, absolutely. Uh, they had trouble remembering my name in the first few months. But something happened after a while, and Joe and Jack left. And I was the only fellow left. And Martin came into me and said, Stan, do you think you could kind of put out these magazines while I look for somebody else to replace Joe and Jack with. Well, when you're 17 years old, what do you know? I said, sure, I can do it. So I started writing the stories, and I was dealing with the artists, and I think Martin forgot all about it. He never did hire anybody else, and I stayed there, and just through longevity, I guess, I became the head writer and the editor and the art director, and I was having fun. By the time I was 18 or 19, I was running the comic book department, which was really a kick for me. And I was working with people who were much older than I was. And I'll never forget one day I was in the reception room. 
I had just said goodbye to somebody, and before I left the reception room, somebody walked in, an artist, a regular man, a guy about 28, 30 years old, and he said to me, hey, kid, um, I'm here to see the editor. (laughs) I couldn't embarrass him by telling him that I was the editor. I said, I'll go in and see if he's free. (laughs) Now, when you worked with the artist, let's say when you were thinking about the Fantastic Four, Mm -hmm. how did it work? Did you talk to the artist about each character and... Yeah. How, do, how, do, how does it work out with, between you and the artist, especially at the beginning, at the conception of a series? What happened was for the first 15 or so years that I was there, 15 or 20, I don't know, I wrote all the scripts. And you'd write a script the way you write a movie a screenplay. Uh, you write the description of each panel, what the artist should draw, and then you write the dialogue. After a while, some of the artists that I worked with were so good at what they did and they understood telling a story visually that in order to save time, because there was a time that I was writing about, I don't know, 20 books a month, I started just telling the artists what the story was, what the plot was. And instead of me writing on page one, panel one, draw this, panel two, draw this, I left it to them how they would tell the story visually. Here's the story. And I told it to them, now do draw it any way you want. So they did. They would bring it into me in pencil, and I would letter in all the dialogue, which didn't take long because you're looking at the picture, and it's so easy to think what the characters would be saying. I liked working that way much better than working a script, than writing a script. A, because it was much faster, but B, I realized I'm getting better stories that way because... The artist was drawing it his own way, putting in whatever he thought would be the most exciting or dramatic picture. When I wrote the dialogue, instead of writing it in a vacuum with nothing to look at, I was looking at the picture so I could pinpoint that dialogue exactly so it matched what the illustration was. So it was faster, and I think we got much better stories that way. And in those days, Jack Kirby was our top artist, and he he was really a writer also, but he wrote with illustrations, and he contributed a lot to the. I would give him the basic of the story, and he would add so much. And then uh, there were other artists. There was Don Heck, with whom I did Iron Man. I was so lucky because I worked with these artists who were wonderful. They, They were all freelancers, but I had an artist on staff named John Romita, And he was great is the only word for him because any artist doing any other strip that was late with the strip or was ill, John could fill in and do it, and he did it as well as the other artist. John was the most valuable guy you could ever have on a staff. So I was the luckiest guy in the world. I could do nothing wrong with artists like that. Tell me, how did Marvel Comics get started? After we did the Fantastic Four, which was really a whole new type of magazine for us, and it started selling, and the Hulk and the X-Men and Iron Man and Daredevil were selling, I decided we ought to change the name of the company. So I said, let's call ourselves Marvel Comics, because the first magazine Martin had ever published was called Marvel Comics before I got there. And I thought Marvel was a great word. See, I love advertising, and I love 
catchphrases. And I thought with a name like Marvel, I could promote the company and the books. So we called it Marvel Comics. And then I started writing columns and editorials, and I'd use phrases like, remember, wherever you go, whatever you do, always say, make mine Marvel, you know, and Marvel marches on, and welcome to the Marvel age of comics. And I had all those phrases, and after a while, they became well-known, you know, and people would talk about, oh, this is the Marvel age of comics. How did you come up with the word Excelsior? Well, you know, when I was writing these columns at Marvel, I used to, I told you I liked advertising and slogans and catchphrases, and I said, damn, I've got to come up with something that, A, they won't know what it means or how to spell it, and B, then therefore they won't copy it. So I thought and thought, and I remembered the motto of the state of New York. The motto on the seal of the state of New York says Excelsior. And, of course, that means, it's from an old English thing, it means upward and onward to greater glory. So I started ending my columns by saying Excelsior. And I was right. They never tried to copy that. So it became a little catchphrase for me, and I love it. The only bad thing about it, if you look it up in the dictionary, Excelsior, the first definition It's that kind of sandy stuff they use when you wrap a package and you don't want, it's fragile, you don't want it to break, you spill Excelsior in the box. So I got so many letters from kids. How come you end your column with stuff that stops packages from breaking, you know? So I had to answer and tell them, you got to get a big dictionary and look for the second definition, which is upward and onward to greater glory, or as we say in my circle, Excelsior! (laughs) Stan, you know, it occurs to me over the course of your career, you really have seen such an evolution of comics. Mm -hmm. I think you're the one who said it was the lowest on the cultural totem. The lowest rung of the cultural totem pole. Yeah, I think that's your line. Now it's considered an absolutely legitimate art form. We have people who are Hollywood writers, novelists, television writers fighting to write comic books, and they're all in the field now. But that's an amazing transformation of the field. It absolutely is. And, of course, the movies have had so much to do with it. When Batman was first a hit... By the way, I I was friendly with Bob Kane, who created Batman. And he always used to rib me when the movie Batman came out. It was before our movies had come out. And he said, well, now you know which is the best, Stan. Batman, not (laughs) Spider-Man. And... I, I, and he teased me about that, and I, I, I sure wish he was here now so he could see what we've done. We'd still be kidding each other. You interjected social issues into your comics. I am fearless <laughs> as long as nobody is threatening me. <laughs> You know what it is? It's very tough to write about anything without injecting some angle or thought or bit of philosophy of your own. And since I had the freedom to do it, and the two big things, because I didn't feel it's my place to preach to anybody. Kids are buying, and older people, are buying these books for entertainment, 
I'm not supposed to be a minister or a psychologist. But the, the two things that I did try to stress in our stories, even those I didn't write, but especially those I wrote, was good moral values. And we always would try to make the hero the glamorous one, the one that the reader would want to emulate rather than the villain. We didn't want to draw tough guy villains who'd seem more macho and more glamorous than the hero, as they often do in movies now. And another thing, we tried to, as much as possible, give the feeling that bigotry is a terrible thing. In fact, I remember I did a book called Sergeant Fury and His Howling Commandos, which was a very popular series of war stories. Sergeant Fury was, uh, it was in World War II, and Sergeant Fury led this commando squad. And this was the first, as far as I know, ethnically mixed platoon in lit- literary history. I had a, um, a black fella named Gabriel Jones, a Jewish fella named Izzy Cohen, an Italian Dino Minnelli, and on and on. The whole platoon was totally racially mixed. And everybody said to me, Stan, that book won't sell in the South. It won't sell in the East. It won't sell in the North, in the West, on Mars. But it sold all over. It was one of our best-selling books, which gave me a great feeling about the real American public. I mean, the book did so well, and it had all these mixed people. Your heroes have moved so seamlessly onto the screen, so it seems. I wish I could take credit for that, but um, I have very little or really nothing to do with the movies. They just based them on things that I had written and the other I and the artist had done. And I guess it's a monument to the fact that basically, I guess those were fairly commercial stories. And it's wonderful the way, I mean, I am so thrilled with the success of those movies. And and I'm thrilled that they give me a little cameo in each one. That is more fun doing those cameos. And you get great reviews. Yeah, of course. (laughs) I I understand Robert Downey Jr. is really angry. Nobody mentions him in Iron Man. All the talk is about me. (laughs) Tell me about POW Entertainment. I thought you'd never ask. I'm about to. Well, obviously you know what POW stands for. (laughs) Pow. <laughs> you, you should have figured it out. Everybody figures it out in a second. POW stands for <clears throat> Purveyors of Wonder. How did I miss that? I know. It's, yeah. Well, we'll talk about that okay. later. And there's an exclamation point after it because we don't want it to be confused with prisoner of war. At any rate, I have a very unusual, wonderful contract. I'm allowed to do whatever I want to do to form my own company And even if it's competitive with what Marvel is doing, not that I could be any competition for Marvel. So anyway, POW is a new company that I formed with two other men. And we're doing movies and television shows and cartoons and things on the web and things on telephones. And um, so we have projects going on all over the country at, at different producers. We don't do the actual production, which is easy for me. I come up with a concept, let's say, for a movie. And if POW sells it to some movie studio, we function as executive producers. And, of course, we have a lot to say about the movie. But we're not financing it, and we're not working with it day by day. So that means 
we sell it to one company, and now I write something for another company, and then for another. So we've got about 30 or 40 things now floating around all over Hollywood in various stages. And it's really, I think, the most exciting time of my life. And there's a documentary. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, that's embarrassing. Oh, go ahead. They're they're doing this documentary about my life. They've been working on it for about a year and a half now, and I I think it'll be finished by the end of this year or certainly by January, and they've put so much work into it, and they've interviewed a million people. Have you seen it? I saw the list of people they interviewed. Who didn't they talk to? It's amazing. Well, anybody who isn't interviewed in my documentary, I mean, they'd be embarrassed to show their face. (laughs) (laughs) What was your response when you heard you had been given the National Medal of Arts? Well, I figured what took them so long. No, I'm only kidding. At first, I thought it was a gag, you know, but then I realized they were serious. I was, need I say, I was thrilled. I really was. I I can hardly believe it. I mean, when you realize that there I started out doing these comics, which nobody had a good word for years ago, and now to get this award, I mean, it's it's very dramatic. And it is so well-deserved, Stanley. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't be happier. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving hey, us your time. Hey, it was a time. pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Excelsior! <laughs> Bravo. Okay. That was National Medal of Arts winner Stan Lee, the king of comic action heroes. You've been listening to Artworks, produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. To find out more about the NEA, go to www.nea.gov. That's N-E-A. Artwork's theme music is Take 5 by NEA Jazzmaster and National Medal of Arts winner Dave Brubeck. It's performed by the Dave Brubeck Quartet and used courtesy of Desmond Music and Dairy Music Company. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.